And it's really about shifting your mindset. It's moving away from a punitive mindset. It's putting a focus on relationships and really keeping that idea of building relationships, not only with students, but among students at the forefront. And also that idea about doing with and not to. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today's conversation will take us into the realm of restorative justice, and Caroline Gosling will be joining us shortly to share her expertise. Our conversation today is taking place on the ancestral and traditional territories of the First Peoples of the Treaty 7 region. We'd like to situate our virtual conversation in the physical place and land that we're on, which is known as Mokinstis to the Blackfoot peoples. As we enter into our conversation, we want to recognize that the foundational knowledge and practices of restorative justice in our location come from Indigenous ways of knowing and Indigenous ways of being. So while it may be new to us as individuals and as learners, these concepts are by no means new to this land and to this region and to the First Peoples. So with this, I hope that we can reflect on how to practice restorative justice in our work as teachers in ways that honor the source of this knowledge and in ways that don't reinforce harmful patterns of appropriation. So we come into our conversation then with gratitude to the ancestors, elders, knowledge keepers, the land and water protectors, all of those folks from the past, those folks in the present, and those who are in the making. So before we jump in, I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast learning is portable. So we want to kick you out of the classroom and into the great outdoors. And as you're listening, we invite you to do a little something for yourself and use this time to multitask for your own well-being. So welcome to Pod Class, Caroline, and thank you so much for being here. As our listeners are thinking about ways to tend to their wellness, I was wondering if you could start by sharing some of your own favorite ways to nurture your wellness. Well, that's a great question. I'm not really a winter person, but because of COVID and wanting to visit with people outdoors, I actually started snowshoeing this winter. So I'm really enjoying that. It's great to be able to get outside even when there's a lot of snow um, and get some fresh air. So I'm really enjoying the snowshoeing. And then I've gone back to keeping a gratitude journal. So I am finding that that has been, again, really helpful given our current times. Oh, that's awesome. We were always uh, at Everactive Schools finding ways to encourage people to find a love of the outdoors in all of the seasons. So uh, it's really helpful to hear that even though winter maybe is not your favorite, that you're still finding ways to to get outside and enjoy it. I know that's something I have to work on. So uh, that's a little nudge of encouragement <laughs> for me as well. So we can dive right in. I'd, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what your experience is in the area of restorative justice in education. Sure. So I'm uh, I'm an educator. I just recently retired after 34 years with Edmonton Public Schools. During that time, I was a teacher. I taught elementary, junior high, and senior high. I was a consultant for a couple of years and then a principal for many years in four different schools. I also oh, had 
Yeah. So you've you've been around the the block in all of the different roles. So you have like a very entrenched understanding of of the day to day working of schools. Hey. I also had the opportunity to do um, some secondment. So I was seconded to Alberta Children's Services for uh, a year, and then I was seconded twice to Alberta Education. So it was really a great opportunity to get more of a provincial perspective than simply a district perspective or a school perspective. Absolutely. So just out of curiosity, my background is in social studies and English language arts, but we know as teachers, we don't always, you know, focus in those areas. So I'm just curious about, you know, when you started teaching, what was your area that you began in? What division, maybe what subject areas? I went to U of A when you could still major in special education. So that was my, my major. And I started out in a junior high class for students who had dual diagnoses. So they had um, either a mental health diagnosis or a behavioral diagnosis, as well as something else like a cognitive delay or so that's, um, that's where I started. And then I really developed a love of children whose behavior challenges us. And that's sort of the route that I continued on. I was a behavior consultant for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, and then as a principal, often in schools with populations that we would consider to be more vulnerable. Amazing. So it, it, it's clear that your journey to where you are now is probably connected to those early teaching experiences and navigating different supports and different barriers to support in the school classroom. Exactly. So tell us more about your learning journey and, and what brought you to this work. You know, you've given us kind of a pathway through your teaching career. And now you are doing professional learning or providing professional learning in the province around restorative justice. What brought you to this place of restorative justice from those early years being a teacher supporting students through special education? I was a brand new principal in an elementary school in Northeast Edmonton. And we had a beat officer that was really interested in the whole field of restorative justice. And the Edmonton Police Service was bringing in a couple of Australian gentlemen to do some work with them around restorative justice. And the beat officer invited the principal from the school down the road and myself to be a part of that. So that was my first introduction to the world of restorative justice. And that was three days learning how to facilitate community or restorative conferences. So that was my introduction. It was a philosophy and and a process that I thought was really needed instead of our exclusionary processes that we often use in schools. And that's kind of where I started. And then from there, I became really interested in the more proactive applications of the restorative philosophy, and the difference that that could make prior to needing to go to a formal, you know, restorative process when harm's been caused. So that was really what piqued my interest and started me kind of down the road of looking at how do you build restorative cultures in classrooms and schools? What can you do proactively? Fantastic. I think one of the things that we want to explore in our conversation today is that proactive or those proactive strategies, sorry, uh, to create restorative cultures in the classroom, because we know that oftentimes, uh, particularly with our current disciplinary processes in schools and school divisions, Uh, First of all, it's framed through discipline. And second of all, it's very reactive. So we're really excited to dig in a little bit more about those aspects of classroom cultures that we can support as pre-service and in-service teachers. But first, maybe I'll ask 
uh, a little bit about your role now. So you're you're currently the past chair and an active board member of the Alberta Restorative Justice Association. What does this role entail, and what kind of work do you do with organizations in this particular role? The Alberta Restorative Justice Association is a provincial body that really promotes and advocates the use of restorative justice. And its mission is to make restorative justice available to all Albertans. And it's more focused on restorative justice, as you would think about in the criminal system, than it is about schools necessarily. Certainly, there's a school representation on the board. But really, their role is to support organizations that are providing restorative processes to individuals and community and to work with Alberta Justice and Solicitor General towards making restorative justice more of a mainstream process than always being an afterthought or an alternative. So that's really what the Alberta Restorative Justice Association does. And then um, my other role is I do work for the International Institute of Restorative Practices Canada so that's the work that I do with schools and the more of the proactive work around how do we create those schools and cultures? What are the things that we can do to prevent harm from happening as frequently? And then about how do we repair harm in a different way? That kind of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you alluded to restorative justice through the criminal justice lens. We know that it takes place in schools and classrooms, too, a little bit differently. But what is restorative justice and and sort of what are the foundational values that are important for us as we look to build this into our practice at the school level? I think when people hear restorative justice, they automatically go to the reactive place and that it's about... um, It's about resolving conflict, repairing harm, which it is. When we work with schools, we generally talk about restorative practice because it encompasses all the proactive pieces as well as the responses to harm and wrongdoing. The values for both remain the same. And at the heart of all processes and all things restorative is really the focus on relationships. It's really all about relationships and that idea that we don't hurt people, places, and things that we're connected to. So that's a really big part of it, is how do we have that relational focus in schools and classrooms particularly? How do we create relationships with and among students? One of the other values is the idea of empathy, particularly in schools. It's about how do we nurture empathy? How do we start and help people understand how their actions impact others and what other people, why other people might be doing what they're doing. Another big part is the idea that it's a it's very inclusive. So we talk about in schools, how do we involve and engage all people? So in a proactive way, that's really about how do we do things with students, not to them. In the more formal justice cases or in more serious incidents in schools, the inclusive piece is really how do we invite a wider range of people who have been impacted by what happened to participate in resolving what happened and not just having the person who was harmed and the person who caused harm. So those are some of the really underlying values around a restorative justice process or when we talk about building a restorative culture. 
like, thank you for that overview. I think that you, your expertise in this area is also particularly powerful because when we think about the role of a principal, oftentimes we think about the role of the principal is that disciplinary role. And in traditional classrooms, whether it's, you know, our experiences growing up or, or even in classrooms today, we often see teachers and, and jurisdictions kind of in that position where discipline is, is sort of handed off to the principal and there's a gap in accountability but also community building and relational competency building in the classrooms. So it's interesting that you bridge this from, you know, the justice system into the the classrooms and even into the process of classroom community building rather than just a, a replacement for disciplinary processes. It's it seems like a whole culture shift. It it really is. And the goal is to reduce the number of incidents that you need to resolve because they take time and time away from teaching and time away from learning. And for a lot of students, it means time away from the classroom, which is in a way taking them out of their community and pushing our students who often feel a bit disconnected anyway, farther away. And I I think for me, when I recall learning about restorative justice, part of the issue is that schools are not separate from the justice system. And we do recognize, I think we recognize this a little bit more uh, in narratives from the United States than maybe we'd take responsibility for in Canada. But we recognize this prison to, or sorry, this school to prison Mm -hmm. pipeline where these practices that push students out of the classroom and push students away from belonging and into those disciplinary processes end up being pushed away from opportunities and closed off from opportunities uh, and those ha- that has ramifications, you know, further down the road. So it makes sense now that that you are involved in this work between the justice system and in education systems as well. There are some real parallels there. And a number of years ago now, not that long, but Texas did a huge longitudinal study where they looked at, they tracked thousands of students from grade seven through high school graduation and beyond. And the correlation between the number of suspensions and becoming involved in the justice system was staggering. How do you see this taking place in Alberta? Do you see those similar parallels? Or do you know that, is there maybe less research that's done in the Albertan context? There has not been as much research done in that area. But I really, I think there's been more research done in the area of the more suspension students have, the less likely they are to complete high school. Wow, that's important for us to know as, as we're thinking about, you know, shifting our paradigms around supporting students and shifting away from kind of the traditional classroom management model into uh, restorative practices. And, you know, we think about, I mean, we've been talking about out of school suspensions, but even when I think about sending a child out of a class in elementary school, what message is that sending to that child? And so it may not be as dramatic or drastic as being sent home for three days, but it's still having an impact on that child's sense of connectedness to the classroom and their sense of belonging. Absolutely. Uh, Can you tell us how you see restorative justice practices being implemented in school divisions and classrooms? I would say that in Alberta, there aren't many, if any, school districts who have adopted this at a district level. There are lots of districts that support restorative practices in schools and 
and because of that, have schools that are implementing it. Of course, to get the best results, having a whole school decide this is the route they're going to go garners the best results. But I've also seen classrooms where the teacher just wants to do this, be really successful. And it's really about shifting your mindset. It's moving away from a punitive mindset. It's putting a focus on relationships and really keeping that idea of building relationships, not only with students, but among students at the forefront. And also that idea about doing with and not to. That idea that people are much happier, more cooperative, more productive, and more likely to positively change behavior when things are done with them. And I think we just need to think about us as adults and how we feel when we have some voice and choice in what we do versus when we're told what we're going to do. Absolutely. I think it's, it's interesting. So I'm currently a student at the University of Calgary. I'm in uh, graduate studies. And uh, one of my profs recently talked about needing to build not just academic rigor in schools, but relational rigor in schools. And I'm curious because, you know, I think for me as a teacher, I would say I've had to do a lot of work even after getting my bachelor's of education to build that relational rigor and build those skills. Do you have any advice for teachers as a starting point, even just for themselves to build those relational aptitudes or competencies so that they can have that starting place uh, of shifting their mindset? I, I, for me, the main, I mean, the main pieces as you get either ready to go out into your classroom or you start to think about that, it's really putting in place those routines and, um, I don't know, rituals for lack of a better word, but sometimes that gets taken the wrong way. But even things as simple as being at your classroom door every morning, greeting your students by name or for junior high and high school teachers at the start of class every day, being at the, making a point of being at the door and greeting students by name, really thinking about where are those opportunities to get to know people better? What can you be doing in your classrooms so that your students can share information about themselves and other students get to know them on a bit of a deeper level? Sometimes we think because kids sit together in the same classroom for maybe six hours a day in elementary and maybe 60 to 80 minute periods in junior high or high school, that they're getting to know each other, but, but they're really not. And when we think about when if you want to use the word bullying happens, generally it's behavior directed towards somebody that we perceive as being different from us. And the more that we can intentionally build in time for our students to get to know each other and maybe find some common ground, what we find is that those incidents of being mean or unkind or hurtful decrease dramatically. And I think as you were sharing that, I remembered in one of my Early years teaching, I think it must have been maybe my first or second year, and I was doing a class activity with my students. And, you know, it, we were maybe five or six months into the school year. And one of my students asked me what name another student or what was another student's name, um, because they couldn't remember. And I remember just being so confused, like, what do you mean? We've been spending all this time together. How do we not know each other's names? But in those early years of teaching, I think we often get so caught up in curriculum that that drives the work that we do. We're constantly 
driven by, you know, what assessments we need to accomplish, how to prep for those lessons. And we forget that those little practices of just saying hi and and greeting people at the doorway are really so foundational and so important in building and setting those norms for, for community and being a starting point for relationship. That's so true. And I, and especially I think for beginning teachers, when you are really concerned about the curriculum and your year plan and are you on track or are you not on track? Yeah. It, it can be all consuming. The reality is that the more time at the beginning of the school year you spend getting to know your students, the more that's going to pay off in the end. Because if you don't have a classroom environment where your students feel safe and connected and like they belong, their brains aren't going to be in a place to learn anyway. So all the time that you invest in creating those dynamic, exciting lessons are all for naught because if kids are concerned about, you know, who am I going to sit with at lunch today? Who's going to play with me at recess? What's going to be on my phone when I check it at lunch? They're not learning. Absolutely. And you could have, you know, the whole three ring circus at the front of the classroom, and that's not going to change anything. So I think that's, that's really important learning. And I know, we sometimes take it for granted, but that relationships first is is such an important piece for new teachers. Mm-hmm. So I've heard of some practices for creating restorative cultures uh, in classrooms, one of those being uh, the use of circles to build community. I'm wondering if you can share with us some other promising practices for implementing this work in school and classroom contexts. Well, definitely, I would say circles, you're right, are one of the practices that those just community building circles are one of the practices that schools that take on this idea of building a restorative culture find probably one of the most effective and impactful practices. There's also even that idea about taking the restorative principles and embedding them in what you do every day. So when we think about that idea, again, of how do we do with, it's where can we find opportunities for students to have voice and choice. So even at the beginning of the year, when you start deciding what are your classroom agreements going to be, how do we have that conversation that's inclusive of everybody to hear everybody's ideas about what are those agreements going to be and what does that really mean and what do they look like and what do they sound like? Even academically, do students have choices in projects that they want to do? Do they have choices in a book, maybe between three novels that they want to read? All of those kinds of places where they feel like they have a voice is going to go a long way towards creating that kind of restorative culture. Even things like, you know, lots of elementary schools now have the luxury of different kinds of seating in the classroom. So students can pick if they want to stand, if they want to sit on you know, like a yoga ball, whatever that looks like. All of those things really play into that idea of creating a classroom where there's voice and choice and the students have some agency over their day. And that's one of the big pieces as well. Fantastic. I, you know, the language of agreements I have found to be so helpful in my my work most recently with high school students. I think in building that sense of community, offering agency and voice, and then also offering avenues for, um, for lack of better word, accountability, like when, mm-hmm. when agreements are broken, we can go back and revisit and talk about those agreements that we made and how we can take responsibility for ourselves and, and have concern for other people. That has been a game changer for me, for sure. And even when you think about that, which is a really good point, when an agreement isn't followed through on, 
the conversation that you have around that is much more relational because it's about what was it that we agreed to and, Absolutely. You know, and what's happened. It's not about, so this is the rule that you broke, which mm-hmm. has no connection to anybody. It's not relational in the least. It's just an arbitrary thing that you didn't follow. And it's an arbitrary, you know, somebody telling people what to do as opposed to like, this is what we came to together. And like you say, offering agency and it's it's not mm-hmm. being done to folks. Those agreements are not done to those students. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be big things. I still remember when my daughter was in grade three and she came home from school and I was asking her about her day and she was so excited because the teacher let them pick the even or the odd math questions for homework. But she felt like she had a choice. So for an eight-year-old, she felt like she had some agency over her day. Yeah, which is awesome. I mean, that's that's empowering for sure. And and as we build that agency, that that responsibility, I think, comes along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and concern for for the feelings of others and the experiences of others. And it's that idea of responsibility and accountability is also a huge piece in the restorative world. It's really about how do we teach people to take responsibility for their actions? And that's not a skill that we're born with. We learn to take responsibility by what we're, what's modeled for us, what's reinforced for us. So it's really that idea about as teachers with our students, how do we encourage that idea of taking responsibility and how do we model it? So when we make a mistake, How do we talk about that in front of the class? How do we take responsibility for that? And then how do we focus on what we do to make that right? Absolutely. That is such an important piece of a teacher's job. And I think that's one of the hardest things is uh, the vulnerability that goes along with modeling those mistakes and bringing attention to those mistakes. Because I think for particularly beginning teachers, you know, there's always fear about job security, fear about how your colleagues might see you. Um, but I think you remind us that there's an invitation to take responsibility and model and learn from those mistakes. And that offers such powerful learning for our students, even though it requires significant vulnerability and trust. It is so, so powerful for our students and those relationships. And, you know, as a principal, I would hope that our beginning teachers are making mistakes because that's how we learn. And if Mm -hmm. you've got somebody who is either not making mistakes or doesn't want to say that they are, then my concern would be how are they learning? Because that's just, that's just part of it. You know, we make a mistake. We learn from that. That didn't work. Okay. We're moving on. (laughs) Try again. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure if this was your experience, but sometimes, um, you know, you're fresh out of university and there is that pressure to, to somehow be a perfect teacher, but as Experienced teachers know that that's not, you know, something that happens and and we can be decades into our careers and still be making mistakes and learning and, you know, not have things down to a perfect science. So I think that's such an important myth to bust is that we have to be perfect or somehow infallible in our practice. The learning piece, I think, that you mentioned is so important and there needs to be more of an expectation and invitation to learn and make mistakes and work through it for our students and with our students. Mm -hmm. You know, and the students keep you humble. Just when you think you've got kids figured out, you get a new student and it's like, okay, I don't have this figured out. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, they they certainly challenge us in the best ways and and also Mm -hmm. bring out the best in us. Mm -hmm, For sure. 
So on to the next question, I think, you know, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, but it's always helpful for us to do some myth busting on this show. So um, (laughs) I'm just wondering if you might share, you know, like, are there any controversies that dominate the field of restorative justice? And are there any myths that you can help us bust uh, around restorative justice in, in schools? I would say, I don't know if, well, they might be controversies, but I do often hear when not so much teachers, more so administrators, are reluctant to kind of get into the world of restorative practice. One of the things that you'll hear is that, well, I need to send a message to the rest of the students. And that idea that if I handle something in a more restorative nature, I'm not going to be sending a message. And I always I always struggle with that because then are you saying you're going to sacrifice this one student because you feel like there needs to be a message out there? And what about if there is a message, it's just a different message. So that's one of the things that I frequently hear when it comes to the more formal processes. So if a child has caused harm and you have a a choice to make between perhaps a restorative process or an exclusionary punitive process, the idea that the restorative process takes too much time. Uh, So that's another thing that I hear as well. And while, yes, that process might take more time, it generally ends the problem. Because what we find is when we get into the whole punishment mode, and we know that punishment doesn't change behavior in the long term, we keep seeing problems, either the same one or different ones with the same child surfacing and surfacing and surfacing. So in the long run, it's not saving time by going the punitive route. So those would be a couple. And I think the other piece is a lot of people, when they think about restorative justice or practices in school, think that it's uh, soft. It's soft on crime. We're letting the kids off. There's no consequence, which again is not true at all. There are always a consequence to your actions, how that is dealt with and how we decide to make things right just looks different. So it doesn't mean that they're getting off the hook. So, I mean, a really extreme example is I had the privilege of being part of a restorative conference here in Edmonton for a young man. And I don't know if people heard about this incident, but a grade nine grad prank gone horribly wrong. Two young men decided it would be funny to drop a rock off an overpass and hit a big truck and make a loud noise. So this was their plan. It didn't go as they had thought it would. And they ended up pushing a rock through the mesh guardrail on this overpass. And it actually uh, went through the windshield of a school bus and killed the bus driver. So this was late at night. So one of those young men pled guilty right away. And there was a restorative conference held for his sentencing. So he had to sit with his family and supporters and face the family of the bus driver who had died and tell what happened and, and go through that whole process. And, you know, if if you want to say that that's soft, I would have to say you needed to be in the room to see that because it was not soft. And the other young man went the different route. And the, the sons of the bus driver actually said that they think the young man that went to court had an easier time than the young man that came to face them. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. And I think that is, um, from from my lens, at least, or from my experience, something that people often think is that it it is soft. Um, but like you say, when it comes to trying to make up or heal or make right, 
what you have done, you really have to do a significant amount of work. And uh, that is by no means an easy feat. No. And, you know, that's, I think it comes back to that idea about why proactively do we really want to focus on those relationships Mm -hmm. and that idea of building empathy, because we know that everybody has a story. And I think when students understand a little bit more about their classmates and where they're coming from, and maybe what some of their experiences have been, then we find we don't have as many of those situations where somebody has been unkind or, or something like that to deal with because they start to get a better understanding. And it's that's sort of the proactive piece of all of this is that we start to figure out maybe why people might be having a bad day, what's happening for them, what can we do to support them? And it makes a huge difference in our classrooms. So with that, what are some of the barriers to implementation? As you mentioned, there isn't any whole school jurisdiction that is taking this approach in Alberta. So what are some of the barriers to implementing this, knowing, you know, that what we do about it having such a positive impact and um, it's accessible and we should be doing it. Why, why aren't folks doing it or, or what's getting in the way? Oh, wow. I think there's a lot of things. I think time and money for professional development is one of the big ones. I think there are schools that are interested, but again, finding the time and the money for professional development for the staff is often prohibitive, especially right now when, um, I mean, there is some virtual professional development that you can engage in. But, you know, I know for a lot of schools, even trying to find supply teachers to relieve teachers when they do professional development is a struggle. So I think that's one of the big ones. I think that there's still cases where there's lack of support, either at the district level or at the school level. I mean, the bottom line is if you have a school leader who is very much in that punishment paradigm, chances are they're not going to be particularly supportive of looking at how are we going to do this in our school. So I would say for me, those are the two biggest barriers right now. Absolutely. Well, and I'm sure with schools navigating COVID, there are a lot of decisions that are made based on based less on restorative practices and and more on, you know, just logistical uh, needs or practicalities, which probably makes it a little bit more challenging for teachers to engage in this in their classrooms and their schools. Yeah, I would agree. And even schools who have started down that road and teachers who have been using circles on a regular basis are struggling to figure out how they can do that and still adhere to our health protocols. Yeah, absolutely. I know when we did circles, we would usually have an item that we would pass around to indicate who the speaker was. And we can see how that would be something just right off the bat, a routine that would have to be would have to look different. Um, because of COVID restrictions. Yeah. And then how do you keep people six feet apart without needing a megaphone? Yeah. (laughs) And a classroom that's probably small, you know, compared to the high class sizes that we have. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Some, some challenges that way. Mm -hmm. Um, On a lighter note, you know, what, (laughs) what are some success stories maybe that, that we can look forward to knowing that there are some barriers and some challenges What is some of the great work that teachers and schools are doing to create these restorative cultures in their schools and their communities? There are definitely schools that have committed to implementing these practices. So let's say schools who have decided that either every Monday morning or the first time that teachers see students in the week, 
they do a circle, they do an activity that's all about getting to know you. Um, that's one of the really promising practices, or they do that kind of at the end of the week. So a Friday kind of checkout circle. There's a high school in, uh, I think it's Lacombe, grades nine to 12. They've built in a 40 minute advisory class every Monday morning. And that class is pretty much dedicated to that idea of either relationships, doing some activities to get to know each other. It's a cross-graded class. And also on discussing topics that students want to discuss. So again, that idea of doing with, giving students some voice. Those are some really cool examples. There are sort of a set of restorative questions that can be used when something's not going well, it doesn't have to be a conflict. It can be even when students aren't getting their homework done. So schools that have committed to using those non-blaming, non-judgmental questions to get at what's really going on for students. And that's worked really well. And some schools that have been doing that for a while are now actually noticing students using those questions with each other, which is oh, kind wow. of yeah, where we really want to get to. And Absolutely. The research also shows there was a big research review done in the States a couple of years ago. And what they found was that schools who implement school wide practices show an increase in student connectedness and belonging, improved social emotional development, improved attendance, improved high school completion and decreases in fights and bullying and suspension. So, you know, overall, in the big picture, there are some really great outcomes. Absolutely. And that, you know, ties us back into the goal of this course is, you know, promoting student and teacher well-being. We see the impact of these practices in the whole school community. And we know that what's good for students is also good for teachers. So we know that these practices also probably reduce stress and all of the associated, you know, workload pieces that go along with disciplinary issues and promote positive relationships um, I'm assuming, you know, amongst staff as well, you know, creating that whole school culture of belonging and well-being as well. And we didn't really talk about that, but that really is the starting place. If you truly want to have a restorative culture in your school, then that is where we start. So holding staff meetings in circles at the beginning of every staff meeting, having a staff check in, having the staff get to know each other on a deeper level than just, you know, your once in a while, staff room conversations. I think that um, when you're problem solving with each other, with colleagues, or the administration is problem solving with teachers, using that exact same restorative approach, we can't expect to not treat each other restoratively, and then have the kids do that, because they're going to model what what they see. And if we're not behaving in a way that reflects those restorative principles, then probably neither are they. That's such a great point. And in my experience teaching in a, a junior high school for five years, my principal was so supportive of those practices and would often teach us how to use those through the staff meetings. And I remember how impactful that was um, because we we always, you know, speak about there being a shortage of time, especially, you know, when we're trying to, to improve our practices around professional development. Our administrator not only modeled that, but taught us these strategies that we could then the next day take and use in our classroom. Mm -hmm. So thank you for mentioning that, because for me, that was such a transformational experience and, and was an invitation to take that on without, you know, having to take on an extra workload with it. 
And, you know, it really comes down to that idea that if we want to have healthy, well-regulated students in our classroom, we need to have healthy, well-regulated adults in those classrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Amazing. So, you know, for our listeners who are looking to implement this in their practice, you've given us a lot of different ideas. What is the best starting place for our listeners who, you know, maybe would go into a classroom tomorrow? What is something that they could do right away to take this on? I would, I mean, I really do believe that it's that focus on relationships. So thinking about what are you going to do to show the students that you care and you're interested. And, um, you know, there's lots of activities. If you do some Googling, you can find lots of activities around getting to know students, students getting to know each other. There's a really great website that's called Relationships First. And it's out of the Maritimes. And it's actually a professor from a university in Newfoundland. Her name is Dorothy Vandering, who does a lot of research in the area of restorative practices in schools. And there's some really great suggestions and resources for classrooms on her website. Awesome. She also wrote a book called The Little Book of Restorative Justice in Education. Oh, yeah. I've seen that book. (laughs) Yeah. Those little books are inexpensive and they're really an easy read. So that's a great starting place to learn more. And I like the name of that website too, Relationships First. I think that's such an important reminder. You know, write that down, have that as part of the beginning of your lesson plans every day. That, That notion of Relationships First, I think, is such a perfect starting point. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's the perfect place to start. I think if you want to get into, um, I mean, community building circles, there's another great resource. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Circle Solutions for Student Wellbeing. And the author is Sue Roffey, R-O-F-F-E-Y. And it's a great book with lots of activities around holding circles, lots of good information in the beginning about how to kind of be successful about holding circles and also all the activities also build on social emotional learning. So you're kind of doing double duty there. You're strengthening students, social emotional literacy, and you're also using that circle formation to deepen relationships. And there's activities in that book that has from like for kindergarten all the way to high school. And that's hard to find. It's hard to find good circle activities for older students. Absolutely. It is. And then professional development. So if people are interested in finding out more about that, if you look up the International Institute for Restorative Practices Canada, there'll be some information there. Awesome. And so you do work with um, that organization. Do you deliver professional development as well? I do. (laughs) Yeah. Feel free to plug. Give yourself a plug. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so right now, um, I mean, right now, the the International Institute has taken their their workshops in a virt- on a virtual platform. Okay. And it's always starting with that proactive piece. Mm-hmm. So they offer um, two days, although now they're not full days because they're virtual. Okay. Um, and the first day is kind of the framework for restorative practices. And then the second day is on circles. So it's all the proactive pieces. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it so much. Was there anything else that you would like to add that you didn't get to say in our conversation? Well, I think the only thing, and maybe it's kind of the parting comment, is I was listening to a speaker at the um, Alberta Restorative Justice Conference on Friday, and he shared an African proverb that said, when the child is not embraced by the community, they will burn it down to feel its warmth. Wow. 
I just thought that was so powerful about how much our students need that sense of belonging and community. And it speaks to me, I mean, in terms of like the importance of relationship and and how a lot of the behaviors that we see just come from a need for a relationship. And it might feel destructive, but actually it's just asking to be seen and valued. So that's a powerful closing comment for sure. Feel free. No, and I would just say, you know, it is, it's that reframing what we see. I mean, what we Mm -hmm. see on the surface is the behavior, but it does not tell us what's going on underneath, you know, and it's how do we reframe that? You know, instead of talking about a child that's attention seeking, how -hmm. about we talk about them being connection seeking? Absolutely. I I love that. And that's really important to think through and think about like that iceberg model or Mm -hmm. metaphor that we often use holds true. It does. um, That there's so much more underneath the surface. And instead of making assumptions, it's so important for us to reframe and start asking questions. Yep, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for taking the time to share your expertise with us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, we recognize the importance of this work. So we're so glad uh, that you're able to kind of share your expertise with us today from all of the different hats that you've worn in your career. Uh, and we know that our listeners will be able to put this into their practice and, and learn from this as they go into their practicums and into their first teaching jobs. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thanks for the opportunity. I mean, it really is something that I'm passionate about. And I've seen some really amazing results in schools and in students. So um, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk about it. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Thank you to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a very special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or you can visit our website, everactive.org, for more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed.